right, so we're doing our series, Relationships Reimagined, and tonight we're thinking about gender reimagined. And we're thinking about what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman. We have a lot I want to cover tonight. And to do that, uh, we're going to look at two passages from Scripture that I think speak to what in the world does it mean that I'm a male, that you're a male, that you're a man. And what in the world does it mean that you are a female, that you were born a woman? What does that even mean? Does it mean anything? Uh, Is that just a social construct? And I think the Bible has something really important to say. But to do that, I want to look at two passages. The first is more aimed at guys. The second is more aimed at, at girls. All right, here they are. 1 Timothy 3 is the first one. You have it on your handout. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 3. And this is actually Paul saying these, these should be the kind of men that are leaders in the church, elders. And here's what he says. But I think we can say in general these are the kind of men that are real men, that are good men. Here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And then Proverbs 31, which if you grew up in the church, you know this is sort of the classic passage. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to read 10 verses. Proverbs 31, 10 to 20. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the the staff. Is that right? That's what it says. And her hands hold hold the spindle. Might need to Google that one. And uh, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive in. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, some of us are really tired. It's that time of the year. And um, or we thank you that, that you tell us um, that if we're weary and heavy laden, that we can come to you and find rest. And Lord, I pray tonight, even as we think about something that's going to be really challenging, I, ho- I hope for all of us, that we would also know that, that it's only challenging, that it's always challenging in light of the kind of rest that we have in you. That, Lord, ultimately, we know that we can never be fully what we should be. And that's why we need you, Lord Jesus. And that's why we need the cross. So I pray that you would help us to look even at what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, in light of the cross especially. In light of the rest that you offer us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Uh, so we're doing Beyonce songs. And the song tonight is Run the World. And here's what she says. Uh, this goes out to all the women getting it in. You're on your grind. To other, to, other, to other men that respect what I do, please accept my shine. Boy, I know you love it. How we're, and this is the key. How we're smart enough to make the million, these millions, strong enough to bear the children, then go back to business. Who runs the world? Girls. And she says that over and over. Um, so here's, but here's the point when it comes to, when we think about what it means to be a guy, what it means to be a girl, when we think about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman... I think we're confused. 
I don't know if you're like me where you have, maybe you grew up in a time where you, your dad could remember culturally what culture said, this is what a man is and does. But then in our time, it's a little bit confusing. What is a man? What does he do? Same with women. Here's what I think about. When I was in, in seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, I worked at Starbucks for a while as a barista. It was actually a really fun job. But I worked with a person named Chaz. And Chaz was born chastity. She was born female. But Chaz at some point decided that she did not feel like a woman, that she felt more like a man. She, she had desires not for men but for women. And so she went through this identity crisis and really a gender crisis where when I met Chaz, she had, she had dropped chastity. And she was, in the, she was in process medically to become a guy. Um, and, and Chaz was her name. And it was, it was hard for me because I totally wanted to respect that. You know, part of what's so good about working in Starbucks for me while I was in seminary was I learned how to love and relate to and talk to people that weren't Christians. And for some of you, like, that you desperately need that because you don't know how to talk and love non-Christians. And the Lord used Starbucks in that way in my life. But Chaz was hard because I would be at the bar and she would, and see, I did, she did it. And Chaz would be at the register and I would say, she will help you right here. And, and, and Chaz would always come over and say, no, do not call me. She would be nice about it. She'd say, please don't call me she. Please call me Chaz. And whenever I think about Chaz, I think about that she's actually an extreme example of that we live in a time that we don't know what to do. We don't know what it means to be a man and we don't know what it means to be a woman. And even if we, what we think about it, we don't really like it. We don't really like what culture has told us about what it means. This is why Jeffrey Eugenides, who's one of my recent favorite authors, he, in his book Middlesex, which is about this very question, uh, this person who was born hermaphroditic says this as he opens. It's a genius opening, but it gets at the confusion that we feel about gender. Here's what he says, opening the book in Middlesex. He says, I was, this was the character talking, Cal. And Cal says this, I was born twice. First as a baby girl on a remarkably smogless Detroit day in January 1960. And then again as a teenage boy in an emergency room near Petoskey, Michigan in August of 1974. My birth certificate lists my name as Calliope Helen Stephanides. My most recent driver's license records my first name simply as Cal. I'm a former field hockey goalie, long-standing member of the Save the Manatee Foundation, rare attendant at the Greek Orthodox Liturgy. I've been ridiculed by classmates, guinea-pigged by doctors. Uh, a red-headed girl from Gross Point fell in love with me, not knowing what I was. A swimming pool turned, my, turned me into myth, and I've left my body in order to occupy others, and all this happened before I turned 16. And that's an, that gets at that we're confused. What in the world does it mean to be a man? What in the world does it mean to be a woman? What, what, what does it mean? And that's really what I want to do tonight is simply think about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and then lastly, and this is almost more importantly, why it matters to God. What it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and why it matters to God. So first, think with me about what does it mean? Does the Bible have anything to say to us about what it means to be a man? And here's what's interesting is for so long, here's where we are. Here's where you and I are. Is that for so long, our culture defined what it meant to be a man externally. That when you think about what it means to be a real man, when you think about what it means even to be a good man, so much of the time we think about it in, in terms of what you drive, what you wear, what you eat, what you drink, what you smoke. Right? We think about it externally or we think about it externally in the terms of what we have, what we the kind of things that we like, or we think about it in terms of what we do. Which is why, like, if you ever saw uh, Meet the Parents, um, which is one of my favorite Ben Affleck films, where the fact, the whole movie, they're making fun that he's not a doctor, but he's a nurse. 
And typically in our culture, being a nurse was a, is a very womanly profession. And so to be a man who's a nurse is like, you, men don't, don't be, that's not right English. Men aren't nurses, right? And we kind of know, we live in a time where like, of course men can be nurses. But the film gets at that culturally for a long, long time, we define what it, means to, what it meant to be a man completely externally. And we're at a place now where we're starting to reject that. Where we're like, no, being a man has got to be more than, than eating steak. It's got to be more than riding a motorcycle. It's got to be more than having an incredible beard or mustache, if you have finer taste. It's got to be more than, it's got to be more than sort of it's something external, right? Yet, here's the tension, is we don't know what to replace it with. We don't, we don't know. Even if we say that's not what a man is, we don't know we don't know what a man is. That's why in, in her article in The Atlantic, um, Helen Rosen, or Hannah Rosen, has this, has this great article called End of Men. Here's what she says, thinking about this tension and thinking about especially the way it's played out in films today. She says this, American pop culture keeps producing endless variations on what she calls the omega male, which is even less than the beta male, who ranks even below the beta in the wolf bag. This often unemployed, romantically challenged loser can show up as a perpetual adolescent, think Judd Apatow is knocked up, or really any Judd Apatow film, or a charmless misanthrope, Noah uh, Baumbach's uh, Greenberg with, uh, with Ben Stiller, or a happy couch potato, any, basically any but like commercial, right? He can be sweet, this is the key, he can be sweet, bitter, nostalgic, or cynical, but here's the key, but he cannot figure out how to be a man. This is if you watch New Girl, this is Nick. Sweet, bitter, cynical, nostalgic, but he doesn't know. He doesn't have categories. He doesn't have a model for what it means to be a man. And that's what's so interesting about Paul here in 1 Timothy 3. Because Paul is saying, okay, on the one hand, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's not external. It's internal. It's not what you have, what you do. It's who you are. And in particular, if you look at this passage, Paul gives three things that it means, I think, we could say at least three things in this passage about what it means to be a man. And here they are. Three things to sort of make up. What does it mean to be a man? Here they are. Three. Responsibility, integrity, and humility. Responsibility, integrity, and humility. If you look at that list, that's what you would boil it down to. So first, responsibility. A man is someone who embraces responsibility. Both in the sense of you can admit your mistakes, and you can own your foolish choices. You can repent and apologize. But also in the sense of you take control of your life. Guys, listen to me. This is why it's sad if your mom still does your laundry. Because you need to do your laundry. Because you're an adult. Do you see that? This is why you've got to take control. Like you are the one as an 18-year-old man and up that needs to begin to take control of your life. That's a small, silly example, but you see what I'm saying? That now is the time for you to embrace responsibility, which is why we've said that the epitome of what, what we do, what I did in college, and what you want to do, and what your heart wants to do, which is for me, listen, the worst thing that ever happened to me in college was I got a PlayStation 2. I remember the night I went to Walmart, and I went and got the thing, I mean, like I spent, you know, like I spent my mom's money to go get a PlayStation 2. This is like the epitome of what it means to be a man, right? Take mom's money and go like wasted on video games. So I went, bought the PlayStation 2, 
took it back, bought NCAA. I was never a first-person shooter guy because I'm terrible at those games. So, like, when students, when I was at Georgia Southern, were like, hey, come play Halo, I would, like, come over once, and they would destroy me. And I would be, like, I would be, like crying on the inside. And then they would never invite me again because I was just so bad at it. But I was pretty decent at NCAA football, especially the years 1999 and 2000. I was pretty hard to beat. Why? Because I spent literally all day playing it. Like, I vividly remember in 99, I think, is when they came out with the mode where you could recruit, and, like, I was done for. Because I was like, you mean not only can I play games, but I can actually, like, recruit players as the coach? And, like, I would play season upon season. And I literally, my roommate, you know, he would get so mad at me because I would stay up all night playing NCAA football. And I would sleep all day in this class. And then I would wake up, eat three bowls of cereal, and play more NCAA football. And let me just say, that is, that is the opposite of what it means to be a man. You see that? Because I was, I was not embracing responsibility. I was, neglect, I was more than neglecting it. I was rejecting it, right? What does that look like for you? I mean, at minimum, it means you embrace what it means to be a student. Like, that's baseline. I think we could say also you embrace what it means to be an involved member of a church, of a ministry. You want to help out. You don't, you're not just a consumer who takes and takes and takes, but you want to give and you want to lead. You want to embrace some responsibility. Um, so that's the first thing. That's why I like when Mark Driscoll says men are like trucks. You've heard me say this before. I don't love everything Driscoll says, especially about masculinity, because sometimes I think he goes a little too far further than the Bible does. But at this point, I think he's right when he says men are like trucks. They run best with a heavy load. There's nothing worse. My mother-in-law has a pickup truck, and it's a waste. Because that thing is empty 99% of the time. And the, the, the most that that truck does is carry like a ladder from her house to my house. And that's not what a Ford F-150 was built for. It was not built to bring a ladder from my mother-in-law's house. My mother-in-law's fantastic. It's not knocking her. To my wife to put it up in the house and paint. Right? It could, it could do so much more. And for some of you, that's what I want to say. Like, you're a man. And I don't want to shame you. Like, I'm a man. And I, and I feel the failure of what it means to be a man. Listen, I'm the man, and I've shared this with you before. I'm the man who, like three years ago, my boss looked at me and said, Sammy, in your marriage, you are the emotional woman. He said it more crassly. He said, Sammy, you have the emotional boobs in your relationship. And I thought, oh, that was genius and hurtful. <laughs> because it's true. Like, my wife is like the doer, I'm the beer. My wife is like strong, and I like cry. You know what I mean? Like, and my wife cries too, but... So I feel the tension, but do you understand at least when I say that part of, and, and you, there's, you're not being a man when you're not embracing responsibility. Two, uh, integrity. Being a man is not just embracing responsibility, it's embracing responsibility with integrity. What is integrity? Integrity means you don't do the double life thing. Integrity means you are the same person wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever time of day or night it is. You are the same behind closed doors and in public, at church on Sunday and at a restaurant on Wednesday or in Five Points on Wednesday. You're the same person. You have integrity. You know who you are. You have convictions. Listen, by the way, this just dawned on me. We came from a place, you know, we've had experiences as a family in a church that was really, really had strong convictions. And for a long time, I thought having strong convictions seems like a, that seems like you're being jerks. And the more I look back on that, I think, you know what, convictions are cool. Because convictions, when you, have, when you can humbly hold convictions that you've derived from the word of God and you say, you know what, this is who I am. This is what I think Jesus wants me to do. That's integrity. 
And when you can say, I'm not going to be a jerk and look down at people, because that's, by the way, part of the challenge of college, is how do you hold biblical convictions, A. B, how do you hold them in a way where you don't make people feel bad about themselves? Because there's a way of having convictions that you're like smug and you're like, hey, look at me. These are my convictions. Are not an incredible Christian? And look at you. You're sort of like a loser. Right? You're sort of like a, what are you doing with your life? That's not what I mean. And that's not integrity. Because integrity always is going to be gracious. But integrity is you have convictions. You're the same person regardless of who you're with. Uh, and it doesn't change. Because you know who you are. And especially you know who you are in Christ. Um, this is why, you know, when I, part of why I wanted to get into ministry was my youth minister. His name was Mark Yoder. And the thing that drew me in further and further and further into Christianity was Mark Yoder was the same when he taught us on Wednesday night and Sunday night. He was the exact same man as he was when he went out to us with Shoney's. Sad that they say this. We went to Shoney's every, like, every after youth group stuff. And this is just, I lived in a small town. You know, we had, like, Applebee's was our nice place. You would take your date, which is just so hard about the South and small towns in the South. But we would go to Shoney's. But what I loved is Mark was the same person when he was teaching us as he was with his children, as he was at Shoney's, as he was with the waitress. He was the same man. And that's my question for you is, are you the same man? Are you the same person regardless of who you're with? And if you're not, you're not being a man. You're not being the man you could be, right? Three, responsibility one, integrity two. Thirdly, humility. And this is the key. Is that you embrace responsibility with integrity, but you hold integrity with humility. You're open to correction. You're going to have some wrong convictions. Your convictions are going to change. You've got to be teachable. That's what's interesting in, in 1 Timothy 3 is that word when it says able to teach. There's a debate. Does it mean able to teach or does it mean teachable? And I want to say yes. It means both. It means, in the one hand, yes, you've got to be able to teach. But it also means, are you teachable? Are you the kind of person that lets an older, wiser person speak into your life and you listen to them? Are you the kind of person who, who knows that you don't know everything? Are you the kind of person that knows that you don't have it all together? Are you the kind of person that is humble, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis has the best definition of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. You're not constantly beating yourself up all the time. But humility is thinking of yourself less. That's what he calls blessed self-forgetfulness. Because without blessed self-forgetfulness, you're never able to serve anyone. And if you're not serving, then you have no humility. And if you have no humility... You're not being the man you could be. This is why, you know, NBA is about to start up. and NBA's lost to me now. But back in the day, Jordan, Magic, Bird, that was when the NBA was at its heyday. David Robinson, the only autographed, like, sports memorabilia I have is an autographed picture. It's a shot of David Robinson going up for, like, a jump shot. Signed David Robinson, number 50. He played for the Spurs. You might remember him. You might not. But he was an incredible power forward, one of the best power forwards to play the game. He, he, was like a, he was like a mentor to Tim Duncan. But there was a, the same year, a couple years ago, Michael Jordan and David Robinson got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I don't know if you ever saw the speeches, but they were radically different. So you have Michael Jordan, who arguably is the best basketball player in the history of basketball. I think you could say Michael Jordan, in terms of raw talent, in terms of just turning it on, winning games, who's better than Michael Jordan? And yet, if you listen to his speech, it's like the most egotistical thing I've ever watched in my life. You can find it on YouTube. Because basically he opens the speech and he's talking about himself. And he starts bashing the coach in North Carolina who cut him from the team. He starts bashing him. He even starts bashing Dean Smith who didn't play him enough as a freshman, he says. He bashes his teammates. He bashes Scottie Pippen where he gets a dig in and says, listen, Scottie was nothing without me. He bashes, like, every, every, if you fast forward the speech, 
It's like all you would hear is me, 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 I, 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 I. And that's the speech. And he, he goes, you know, most speeches are like, what, 10, 15 minutes? That's what they should be. Best speeches are short. He goes on for like 45 minutes forever, just incredibly ego. And then you have David Robinson who comes up next. And David Robinson, he starts just by simply thanking. He thanks his parents. He thanks his junior high coach. He thanks his high school coach. He thanks his high school teammates. He thanks the Navy, his Navy coach. He thanks the Spurs. He thanks Tim Duncans. He thanks his kids and his wife. And if you were to listen to it, he just, he, it just sounds like this. If you fast forward, it would sound, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And there's this pastor who wrote a blog post about it and said, listen, don't be like Mike. Be like David. Be humble. Even, even use your gifts in a way that are humble, right? Knowing that your gifts themselves weren't, you didn't give yourself the gifts that you have. You didn't give yourself the good looks that you have. You didn't give yourself the athletic ability that you have. You didn't give yourself the brain that you have. You didn't give yourself the family that you have. You didn't give yourself... Who gave that to you? God did. But my question for you is, do you carry those gifts with humility? Because if you don't, you're not being the man you could be. So first, what does it mean to be a man? Well, integrity, responsibility, integrity, humility. Well, now let's think about, we're not just going to pick on guys tonight. We're going to think about the ladies as well. And so that's the second thing I want you to think with me about is, what does it mean to be a woman? And this is where we get into Proverbs 31. And if it's true of guys that sometimes we, we do this thing where we can think about what it means to be a man externally rather than internally. We can think about it in terms of what we do or what we you know, are or you know, what we, the things that we eat, drink, smoke, whatever, as opposed to who we are, character. I think it's equally true of women that the, the tension can be that our culture wants you to focus more on what you have versus what you can give. This is what's so fascinating to me about Proverbs 31. That in other words, that so many times our culture tells you, ladies, that what it means to be a woman is you have certain things. You have a man. You have kids. You have a, a, a cute little house that you've decorated with your InStyle magazines you, you know, or your Oprah magazines or whatever your magazine of choice is, Garden and Gun, whatever it is. That you have these incredible collection of shoes. That you have an incredible body. That you have, you fill in the blank, that you have something, and from that thing which you have, you feel like a woman, you feel like a princess, you feel beautiful, right? Versus Proverbs 31, which is so fascinating, because it's not about what she has, it's what about what she gives. And the thing I want you to grasp, and this is the big thing I want you to get, women, ladies, is that the Proverbs 31 brings life everywhere she goes. Do you see that? It starts with her husband. She brings life to her husband. Creative. It's like the world is in black and white, and then a woman comes along and brings color to it. Brings color to her home. Brings color beyond her home into the community, into the marketplace. The way, the way I've been thinking about it is it's like the Proverbs 31 woman, which I hate saying out loud because I feel like when I say that, you immediately, if you're a woman, you feel shame because you realize, you're, hopefully you realize, you're not that. And you realize how much it's going to take. Like, do you have to literally do all these things where you're, like, working at, like, a sewing machine? Do you have to, like, learn how to sew to be a godly woman? No, you do not have to learn how to sew. Do you have to be an incredible, like, baker and, like, prepare these Martha Stewart meals? No, you do not. What I'm trying to, I want to free you up to say it's, it doesn't really matter how it applies. What matters is the principle is you're a life giver. You're a life bringer. In other words, if, if fundamentally what it means to be a man is you embrace responsibility, fundamentally what it means to be a woman, and we've said this, is you nourish and give life to everything around you. 
Here's the way I've been thinking about it. So uh, my daughters are at a place where they've grown up in Disney movies. But like, the Proverbs 30 woman, woman is like all of the Disney princesses like rolled into one. Yet without sort of the selfish, like, I mean, sometimes Kendra, our, our intern, likes to say, it's, a, you are, it's okay to, how do you say Kendra, to, to be a princess but not act like a princess? Yeah, I like that. But that's like, if you think about all of the gifts, think about the gifts that Ariel has. Or like, I kept thinking about Snow White today, where she's like, with the animals, and like, just, they're all gats, you know, flocking to her. Or even Cinderella, who's not afraid, sort of, to in her beauty, she's the most beautiful in the house, and yet she's not afraid to serve, even though they take advantage. And girls can be very, you know this, can be very jealous and petty and bitter and mean, which is why we love mean girls. I'm saying we like I'm a woman. I'm an emotional woman. I'm an emotional woman, and I connect to you guys. Um, but like another illustration, have you seen, this is, um, I saw this preview recently in the movies, the new, Mary, the new Mary Poppins movie that's coming out, Saving Mr. Banks. It, this is part of what I'm saying, like it's fascinating, it, the, basically the point of the movie, and it's got an incredible Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney, and, and the whole thing is about how the woman who wrote Mary Poppins was really unsure about giving it, letting Disney making a movie, they had to convince her that they would do a good job with it. But through the movie, you can see even in the preview that the point is not that she saves the children, but she saves the husband. Because Why? Because she's a life bringer. She brings life. And that's what the problem Being a woman means you bring life wherever you go. Three things. This is the tension, though. Here are the tensions that Proverbs 31 gives of what it means to be a woman. Here's the first tension. Is you cultivate beauty, but you're not controlled by it. You cultivate your beauty, but you're not controlled by it. Here's what's interesting. If you look at down deeper in Proverbs 31, it says she, she's not afraid of fine linen and purple. That she, she puts work into her appearance. She puts work into her home. She puts work into making herself and things beautiful. And yet, she's not controlled by it. Because she knows of several things. She knows, on the one hand, that, that, that physical beauty is fading. Because you're getting older every minute. And there's, you know, we have cougars, I guess, which is more reflection on guys than on women. But, like, we all hate, like, I remember my wife and I went to this dinner three weeks ago. And there's a, this older guy that we know. And he's doing this thing where, it's, in a sad story, his wife died probably five years ago. But the women he dates, like, he, the woman he's dating now, is she's in her 70s. And yet she's had so much plastic surgery that she looks like she wants to be in her 30s. But, like, what's happened is something that's, like, worse. It's like a monster. It's like, it literally terrifies me more than, I've never seen the Saw movies, but like what I imagine the Saw movies to be. Just this woman who's like, I want to be like, do you, you have mirrors in your house? Like, do you see what I see? Because this is just sad. This is just sad. Like, she's hanging on to dear, she's controlled by her beauty. And I don't, whatever, we can get into plastic surgery. That's not the point. I don't, I don't care about that as much. What I care about is, She's, she enhances, she cultivates her beauty, but she's not, she's not controlled by it. Um, this is where my, one of my good friends, and this is the moment for him, where his daughter is the same age as my daughter. And she, like my daughter, when my daughter especially was three and four, she loved to do the, she bought the princess dress. We gave her the princess dresses, like the Disney princess. So she had like the frog and the princess and the frog, that dress. And she loved to dress up like a princess. And my friend's uh, daughter was doing this one day in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And she had gotten really sick. And so here she was. She was in her princess outfit. But she got the stomach virus and she threw up all over herself. And here she was. She's in throw up. Her her dad comes and he takes her dress off and he takes her to the bath. And 
He's giving her a bath. She's three at the time. And she says, and he said it's a line that just killed him. She said, Daddy, I don't feel like a princess anymore. And he said everything in him wanted to say, you are. You're my child. You are beautiful. And I love you. And that you're not beautiful because of your external appearance. You're beautiful because of your heart. And I love you. And part of me so longs for your heart to get a hold of that. Because you know what's beautiful? You know what's sexy? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. Is a woman that feels beautiful. And do you know what makes a woman feel beautiful? Is knowing there is nothing she can do to make her God love her any less. And she knows that that God is going to provide for her in every way possible because he loves her in and truly, the Bible says, in the, in the most beautiful way, that in the eyes of God, you are a princess. You're, you're, that worthy, you're that valuable to him. And when you know that, and your heart knows that, not only does it free you up to not be controlled by beauty, but like that radiates. Right? Whether you could be America's Next Top Model or not, that radiates. And we can all feel it. <laughs> that sounds creepy. But we can all sense it. We feel it. We know it as men. And as women, right? So one, you're cultivate your beauty, you're not controlled by it. Two, you're not afraid of the workplace, but you're not a, a slave to the workplace. Not afraid of the workplace, not a slave to it. Uh, the best thing that ever happened to my wife and I in seminary was my church did a, a couples panel. And there were two women on the panel that went that Jesus called in very different directions, and it was beautiful. One was a woman who had gotten married. She, she was genius, went to Princeton, had a law degree, was an incredibly successful lawyer, then got married and wanted to have kids. And as she had kid number one, two, three, four, five, they adopted the fifth, she gradually laid down her law degree. She laid down her career to be a mom because she wanted to. And her, the dad made enough for they could live that way. And so she laid down that here's this gene. And, and people that weren't Christians said, what a waste. You went to Princeton. You got a law degree. What are you doing? And she would say, it was incredible. I love that time in my life. And I can still go back to those things maybe when my kids are grown. But I'm not, I'm not a slave to that. And then here was another woman who was older. Her kids were in college now. And here she was. She had been a stay-at-home mom. For all of her, for most of her adult life. And here she was. She's an incredibly gifted woman. She is sharp as a tack. She's politically savvy. And here she was. She decided through the calling of her husband and, and of the Lord ultimately to run for, con- for Congress in North Carolina, for local Congress. And she won the position and she's still in the state house in North Carolina. And like, I'm like, yes, that is, who's a, who's a woman? The woman that laid down her career to be a mom or the woman who, as she grew out of being a mom, is in the state house? Yes, both. Because they're both following Jesus in the gifts and the callings he's given them. That's why you can't say it. To be a woman, you have to stay at home. To be a woman, you have to have a successful career. You've got to follow Jesus. You've got to follow Jesus with your gifts. You can't say one or the other because Jesus says this woman is an incredible mom and yet she's not afraid of the marketplace. She takes her goods into the marketplace. Do you see that? Uh, all right, so first, cultivate beauty, not control by it. Second, not afraid of the workplace, not a slave to it. And then lastly, her man is first. Can I say her man? I like to say her man. It makes me feel good. Her man is first, but not ultimate. Her husband is first. He has priority in terms of relationally. She, she, she loves to serve him. She loves to encourage him. She loves to be a blessing to him. But she doesn't live to serve him. She doesn't live to only be a wife because she knows she has an identity outside of that. He's, he's, he takes priority, but he's not ultimate. Why? Because something else takes priority. And namely, it's the kingdom of God. 
And the kingdom of God actually is fascinating that not only does she work to bless her home, but she works to bless her community. Why? Because God cares about her community. And she works to care, not bless the marketplace. Why? Because God cares about the marketplace. We do this weird thing in reform circles where we make family more than what God makes family. Because God says it's not family, then kingdom. God says it's kingdom, then family. And he doesn't pit them against each other. So, like, I can be a, you know, an absentee dad and go serve in Africa and just leave my family drowning in, you know, financial mess. But it does mean that we as a family are committed to the kingdom before we're committed to each other. And that's what you do as a woman. You love your man, but you're not... He's not ultimate, because Jesus is ultimate, right? So lastly, let me say, why does it matter to God? Because this is the last thing I want you to see. Because I think it matters to God for two huge reasons, and this is what I want you to see before we close. It matters to God, number one, because male and female, men and women, because we're both made in his image, both of us say something profound about God that, that not only one of us can say. In other words, part of what it means to be made in God's image is that women say something about God that that men can't say, and men say something about God that women can't say. And here's what I love about Scripture. Scripture says, yes, God ultimately and, and, and primarily in Scripture that Jesus says to us, he is a father. But have you ever read those passages in Isaiah that say things like this? Can a nursing mother, talk about awkward, can a nursing mother forget her child? If you've ever been with a mom who nurses, you know it, when they don't nurse, it's painful. Just an FYI. And God says, even though a nursing mother might forget her child, I will never forget you. That's why John Newton likes to say, there is more. Imagine the most tender mother in the world. And some of us have incredibly tender, affectionate moms. And it's the best. Or, or, or incredibly affectionate and tender aunts. And it's the best. And John Newton says, imagine the, 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 the most tender woman you know. And God is infinitely, Jesus is infinitely more tender toward you. And the way he looks at you, the way he feels about you. That's why Jesus said about his people, like a mother hen longs to gather her chicks, I long to gather you under my wings. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you see God that way? Because if you don't, you're missing what, what, what especially females represent in their image to him. But then here's the second thing you have to see about why, God, why this matters to God. Because here we say, I can hear you saying, but okay... Who sort of, what about this whole thing where men get to do this and women get to do this in scripture and men sort of seems like, it seems like Christianity is this really patriarchal thing where men just have abused women. And I want to say if you've been in a place where men have abused in the way that they treat or look at or talk to women, like that's not God and that's not Christianity. But I want you to say that different does not mean unequal. And that equal can still mean different. Because think about the Trinity. The Bible says that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in their person, equally worthy of our worship, equally worthy of our praise and our love, and yet the Bible says in their roles they are distinct. If you look at Ephesians 1, it says that God the Father chooses before the foundations of the world. It says that God the Son came and accomplished our redemption by going to the cross for us. He had a different role than the Father. And it says that the Holy Spirit has a yet different role from the Father and the Son because the Holy Spirit comes and he actually applies salvation in your life. He makes it real to you. He makes it real to your heart. And we look at that and say, God is one person. He is one being in three persons. He is absolutely equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet with different roles that they embrace. And I want to say to you, it's okay. This is why we say that, we're, we, you know, that, that men and women complement each other. 
In the same way that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit don't threaten each other. They don't have to say, why can't I do that like you do that? They say, we complement and we serve and we enhance and make one another more beautiful. Um, I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite stories in C.S. Lewis's life was you know, when he wrote Narnia. One of the things I love about C.S. Lewis, amongst a lot of things, is that he would write kids back. So kids would write into him. And he would write them back. And he wrote this one letter. This, this little boy who had read Narnia wrote him and said, Listen, I feel really guilty because when I read Narnia and I look at Aslan, I'm afraid that I love Aslan more than I love Jesus. And C.S. Lewis took the time to write him back and said, You don't need to feel guilty at all. Because what you think you love about Aslan, you really love about Jesus. And this is what I want you to see as we close. That when you meet someone, you can say, That is a good man. And when you meet someone, you can say, that is a good woman. But I want you to see, in the same way we could say, what you think is good and what you love about them and what you love about her is that they're just a picture. They're just a a, a small glimpse of incredibly good and great God. That when I look at a man and, and the ways that he embraces responsibility and the ways that he takes care, I can ultimately look at the Father who, in the most ultimate ways, took responsibility for us. In the most ultimate ways, embraces the responsibility of what it means to be our God and our Father. But then when I look at a, a good woman, when I look at a woman who is tender, when I look at a woman who nourishes, I can look and say, that's just a picture of the tenderness that God feels about me. That's just a picture of the tenderness and the affection and the love that he has for me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you for uh, just this time together tonight, for the ways that um, you speak to us from your word. I pray that you continue to, to speak to us as we think about these things. We need you to do that. We need you to be at work in us in these ways. We pray these things in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. Amen.